Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. The preeminent Shakespearean scholar, Columbia University professor James Shapiro, convinces us that Shakespeare matters. His books include 1606, William Shakespeare and the Year of Lear, and 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare. His contested will, who wrote Shakespeare, grappled with the theories peddled by authorship conspiracists. The most accessible of bardologists spoke in conversation with Michael Neal. We hope you enjoy this session. Well, uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to introduce you uh, to this session on our Shakespeare. Uh, that, that is, of course, uh, a, a somewhat um, ambivalent title since it's, uh, it's surely a translation from the German. Um, the Germans in the 19th century began to refer to Shakespeare as unser Shakespeare, our Shakespeare. Uh, but for the moment, we, we will uh, try and tug him back um, from their Germanic clutches and uh, find out ways of thinking about uh, Shakespeare uh, as uh, the property of the world in some respects, as uh, the property of America in particular respects, and, and uh, maybe even since he arrived here with Captain Cook in 1768, uh, the year of the uh, first great uh, Shakespeare festival in Stratford-on-Avon, not coincidentally, um, we, we, we may start to think of some local resonances as well. Um, I've been asked to make the, the usual request to, for everyone to ensure that their cell phones are turned off, and I understand that there are staff who have been detailed to confiscate any that suddenly ring. Um, I should now introduce uh, the, our, uh, what should I say, the star of this occasion, uh, Jim Shapiro. And uh, I, I should say, I want to take this uh, occasion, actually, to, um, to try and, uh, and, and, and settle an old debt, which I can never properly discharge. Um, some years ago, uh, when I, I was even more obscure than I am now, Jim, who I'd never met, persuaded Columbia University Press to publish a collection of my essays. And, uh, and this was a, an act of, in my experience, such unexampled generosity in a profession where people spend so much of their time trying to destroy other people's <laughs> reputations that I've never forgotten it. Well, Michael, I want you to know I did that because I've been stealing from your work for so many years, and I thought I could cover my tracks by having as many other people steal from it as possible. <laughs> anyway, um, Jim is uh, the Larry Miller Professor of English at Columbia University, as you probably already know, and he's here both at the Invitation of the Writers' Festival and as this year's Alice Griffin Shakespeare Fellow at the University of Auckland. He's the author of uh, a succession of remarkable books, but uh, you will, most of you, I imagine, know him uh, as the, the author of two hugely successful, what he calls crossover books, uh, books that uh, both have, have a, a, an astonishingly rich and detailed academic dimension, but which are aimed as well at a popular market and have been extraordinarily successful in doing so, to the envy of all of his colleagues. They must have made him money. Um, the first of these was 1599, a, a year in the life of William Shakespeare that came out in 2005 and won the prestigious Samuel Johnson Prize. Um, that was followed five years later by a, a book that you may not know of, uh, but uh, equally important, I think, Contested Will, Who Wrote Shakespeare? Uh, it, it's a systematic demolition of the weird belief that Shakespeare's plays were actually written by the Earl of Oxford. 
Um, and, uh, oh, I see there's some Oxfordians here. <laughs> and he went on then to produce uh, a kind of sequel to 1599, 1606. And uh, I may get Jim to talk in a minute uh, uh, about the reasons for his having chosen these two particular years. He's also um, produced an anthology called Shakespeare in America, uh, which has the distinction of having an introduction by Bill Clinton. So you can see that he moves in very elevated circles indeed. He uh, has also uh, appeared as a television host in a BBC Four series called The King and the Playwright, a Jacobean history about Shakespeare, James I, and the Jacobean era. And uh, again, to the envy of other people in the field, I think, he has found a niche for himself in the theater so that he moves quite easily to and fro between the, the world of the study and the lecture theater and the world of Shakespeare performance. And he acts as a kind of dramaturg for both the Royal Shakespeare Company in Britain and for the New York Public Theater in New York. Um, so, enough of me. Uh, let me just start off with a question about our Shakespeare and how he came to be that. Uh, because I think if you had asked someone in 1599 or 1606, or six, even in 1623 when the first collected edition of Shakespeare's works came out, and Ben Jonson declared him not for an age, but for all time, people might have been a little skeptical about that kind of claim. They might have acknowledged, perhaps, that Shakespeare was the first among equals, though others might have plumped for Ben Jonson. And uh, some years after his death from, the, from 1660 on in the Restoration, his star was very much on the wane. If people performed Shakespeare, increasingly they did it in rewritten versions that conformed to the proper neoclassical rules. And it was really only in the 18th century that he began to be invented as uh, the person rather repulsively referred to as the bard, although he's about the least bardic poet one could think of. Um, and that really began, I suppose, uh, under the tutelage of, of David Garrick, uh, the great Shakespearean actor who was responsible for that uh, jubilee in, uh, in, in 1769, uh, uh, in exactly the same month that Cook reached New Zealand. So, um, can, can you, Jim, say something about why you think Shakespeare has become such an overwhelmingly dominant figure in, in first of all, in Anglo-Saxon-speaking uh, countries, but now across the world? You've begun with the most difficult question to answer first, so I'll, um, I'll do my, my best. And it's, it's the hardest question because really no one knows the answer to that. When I was working on 1599, I tried to understand what it meant to look at Shakespeare's reputation in that year, a decade or so after he had first started writing plays. In 1606, I asked myself the same question. How were young playwrights looking at Shakespeare at that time? Was he somebody who was already past sell-by date, not writing uh, cutting-edge works uh, as he might have uh, been described as having done so earlier in his career? So I only look at Shakespeare in particular moments. I, I agree completely. If, if we were uh, sitting at a tavern in London in 1610 saying, who do you think is going to be uh, remembered 100 or 400 years from now, we might have said Johnson, we might have said Beaumont and Fletcher, we might have said Shakespeare, but it was a pretty close horse race. So the question of why Shakespeare still matters uh, after 400 years, not just in, in England or Britain, but globally, is uh, it's a complicated question. And the kind of answer I would have given a decade ago that Shakespeare was created as a national poet in the late 18th century when there was a, a need for that, no longer really sticks with me. And the reason why I think my views of, 
of uh, why Shakespeare Matters has changed uh, is because in the last decade or so, two things have happened. One, there's been an extraordinary interest in global Shakespeare and uh, scholars in Japan and in uh, African nations, New Zealand, Australia, around the globe, Ireland, are beginning to focus on what Shakespeare has meant locally and collectively that's a global effort. And you can begin to see the ways in which Shakespeare has mattered over the past few hundred years, but in quite different ways and quite different places. The other reason I've changed my mind is in the last decade, is, as you've noted, I, I found myself in lots of rehearsal rooms and responding to the curiosity, the, the questions, the uh, intense needs of performers who are tapping into these texts. And uh, that has made me feel that there's something in Shakespeare that is not in Marlowe, who I wrote my dissertation on and love, but lacks the three-dimensionality, as does Johnson. And I, I guess the best answer I can give to that question, and it's a provisional one, is that Shakespeare continues to matter because the issues he recognized so clearly in his day issues about exclusion, whether we're talking about Shylock or Malvolio or Caliban, issues of who is included within the comic circle at the end of a play, issues of xenophobia, issues of race, issues of gender in a theater that was so engaged in cross-dressing boys playing or teenage boys playing female roles. So the issues that Shakespeare seized upon then the nature of the family as well and marriage are the ones that bedevil us today. Johnson didn't gravitate to those problems. Marlowe, Marston, Decker did not. But Shakespeare did. And when we struggle to articulate what it means to be different, to exclude, to have rulers who are autocratic and dangerous, we don't turn to the works of Johnson and Decker and Marston and Massinger because they don't speak to us with the same force and immediacy. They don't give us the handholds, so to speak, to grapple with responding to these crises. And uh, the worse the world gets, the more we need Shakespeare. So, um for example, uh, it, you know, in the context of what you're saying, it's interesting that uh, Shakespeare should have written two plays with um, a, a remarkably uh, tricky preposition in them. The Merchant of Venice and Othello, the Moor of Venice. And uh, I think, obviously, it's implicit in what you say that both of those plays put enormous pressure on, on that simple preposition. What does it mean to be of Venice? Uh, that extraordinarily multicultural society is, uh, as it, even English people knew at, at this time and it made it a, a, an object of fascination. What does it mean to be a Moor of Venice? Can you ever be of in the absolute sense? Well, that's the question of both of those great, great plays. And, You've edited uh, Othello and have wrestled with these questions in ways that I haven't in a kind of fine-grained way, but I spent a lot of time in rehearsal rooms, in particular with The Merchant of Venice. Uh, I wrote a book uh, called Shakespeare and the Jews and uh, wrestling um, with uh, questions of what Jewishness means. And uh, after a while, I kept getting dragged into um, rehearsal rooms to help actors wrestle with those questions uh, as well. And I had the great good fortune to, to work with F. Murray Abraham, who everybody thought was Jewish, but he happened to have been born in Lebanon. But uh, <laughs> he was a tremendous Shylock. And watching him struggle with that part and watching that production made me understand the the merchant of Venice question pretty well. Of course, Shylock is not the merchant of Venice. Antonio is the merchant of Venice. And uh, many a Shakespeare professor has given a pop quiz, who is the merchant of Venice? And the students who haven't read it all write Shylock, thinking they've gotten the right answer. But um, <laughs> that's the wrong question for teachers to ask. The right question is, what does of mean? And at the, at the, the dead center 
of that play is a moment in which Shylock is defeated in the courtroom and uh, we fully expect him to stagger off stage having been defeated. And um, Portia says, tarry, Jew, and pulls him back and says there is a law in Venice uh, when an alien threatens the life of a citizen. And whenever I read it, you know, for the upteenth time, I think, hold on a second, how come they didn't tell us about this law in Act One? She's pulling this out in Act Four, Scene One. And then to compound it, he's not punished as an alien, he's punished as a Jew and forced to convert, which Shakespeare invents since nobody had done so in his sources. So that question of of in that play is precisely about what does it mean to be of legally? What's Shylock's legal status? What does it mean to be of the community? And Shakespeare understood how to write plays whose force carries you through a kind of comic, and I don't mean funny, but I mean comic reconciliation and a creation of, or recreation of a community at the end of a play that always leaves one or two out. It's a game of musical chairs, if you will. Mm. And that too is who is of this, who belongs, and who doesn't. And we live in an age where we are increasingly sensitive to who is in and who is out. And when I land in this country for the first time, and it's a remarkable and beautiful country, and, uh, and I have a great feel for the city uh, of Auckland. It feels comfortable to me as a New Yorker. Still, I look around and say, who's in and who's out? I pass a mission, and I see who's lining up outside that mission, and I'm asking who's in and who's out? So those Shakespeare questions reside in me and shape the way I, I see the world. And um, I, I think you're right by identifying that conjunction uh, uh, as uh, uh, the ands and the ofs and the withs are, are great words in Shakespeare. We seem now to, um, to be moving into a, a, a strange kind of dichotomy because much of what you say might seem to be reinstating the, the old idea of the universal Shakespeare, um, which critics who call themselves new historicists or cultural materialists in Britain spent uh, a long time through from the late 70s on, I guess, trying to demolish. Um, and yet, at the same time, much of what you are saying has a very local focus. And uh, I mean local in both the historical sense and the geographical sense. And if we look at your own work, I suppose, um, for, if you go out and, and Google Shakespeare biography, you will uh, almost immediately discover 1599 and 1606 included amongst Shakespeare biographies. And you probably know that um, the, the Shakespeare biography is an industry all on its own, and, and there seems to be no end of writing biographies about Shakespeare, even though we know so pitifully little about the, the, the facts of his life. Uh, the facts that we do know are trivial and sometimes rather disagreeable. He'd be speculating in corn while there was a corn shortage. Uh, what did it mean that he left his wife his second best bed, and so on. So, you, you know, you have people like Catherine Duncan-Jones, who's uh, created someone she calls ungentle Shakespeare. You know, her, her Shakespeare really is a, a, an asshole who happened to write some rather good plays. Uh, on the other hand, uh, someone like Stephen Greenblatt, uh, creating in a book that you know, uh, asks the audience, asks the reader to imagine, let us imagine this, let us imagine that, Shakespeare might have, and so on. In Will in the World, you can tell from the title, Will in the World, it means to be intimate with him, calls him by his nickname. Um, and uh, there's been a whole procession of these biographies, and I suppose there's no reason to imagine they will stop. Uh, why quite people feel so compelled to 
pry through these rather strange spectacles into Shakespeare's life, I've never entirely understood. But your approach to biography, if we can call it that, is very different and much more local, as indicated by the title of your two books. You just take two years out of Shakespeare's life, years that happen to coincide with particular political crises in England, and rather than writing directly about what we can reconstruct of Shakespeare's immediate life, you patiently set about building up everything that is happening around him. Why, uh, can you explain why you take this approach? You know, I don't know how many of you heard George Sanders in this room just uh, an hour ago, uh, but I was sitting here and listening to him describe his writing process and writing short stories. And he said one of his most effective ways of writing stories was not knowing what's going to happen at the end. And there were writers who, short story writers, who block out, or novelists who block out everything. When, when I started writing, uh, say, 1606, for example, uh, and persuaded my publishers to give me enough money so that I could take off time from teaching and, and, and write the book, even though it was 10 years from when I pitched it to when I submitted it, um, it just takes a while. I had no idea what the story was going to be, in part because I didn't know much about 1606. I didn't know much and hadn't burrowed into the literary culture in that year and um, had, I wouldn't say tricked or persuaded my publishers into having faith in me, but really was quite straight up with them that I, I was taking a chance in writing about this year. I could have chosen another year. And one of the, the exciting things is discovering what the story you are going to tell turns out to be. And I think that most Shakespeareans, you know, Stephen Greenblatt and Catherine Duncan Jones, are brilliant scholars. And when they first touch pen to paper in writing their really impressive biographies, they knew how the story was going to turn out. And one of the bad things about not knowing how the story's gonna turn out is, after three years, I turned to my wife and said, I think I'm gonna have to give back the advance. I have no book here, there's no story. <laughs> and another two years passed and I said, I hope we haven't spent too much of that advance because we really do have to give this back. And the picture slowly came into focus. And what these two books are really about, and I'll talk about 1606 still, are two stories, and it connects with your earlier question. Yes, I'm trying to recreate the culture, the pressures, the social, the economic, the political, the personal forces that shaped what Shakespeare was writing in these years, because I believe literature is, is born out of collision of genius and uh, the moment in which those writers are engaging. And with theater especially, Shakespeare's writing for as large a community as you can imagine in his day. But I'm also writing for readers today. And 1606 is a book that fully explores and details as best uh, I can manage what was going on as Shakespeare was writing these plays in his world and in his, in, in his, in his personal life that we can reconstruct. But it's also about what's going on in our world. So I'm writing a book about the division of the kingdom in King Lear at the very moment when Scotland and England are pulling apart, leading to a vote about Scotland's independence. I'm writing this book about King James's efforts to suture Great Britain to the continent at the very moment that Brexit is emerging as an issue. And I'm writing the book uh, in a post 9-11 age, where we are struggling to come to terms with how you live in an age of terror. Because in November 1605, there was a gunpowder plot, and we all know that and associate that with Guy Fawkes Day 1605. But it was in 1606 when the government decided to try, torture, and uh, eviscerate in public executions in London, the perpetrators, and then hunt down the Jesuit handlers, and then construct a case uh, about what one does with fifth columnists, with those who are of a different religion who live amongst us. 
So all the issues that I live with as a New Yorker who um, miss looking downtown and seeing those Twin Towers and think of the 3,000 people who died that day and then the ways in which the government used that story to its own ends. Those stories informed my understanding of 1606 mm -hmm. and I think brought me closer to what Shakespeare is doing. And I'm hoping that the books that I write are, are not read as antiquarian. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'd love to know what was happening in 1599 so I can win a bet with my friend when we're quizzing each other over beers. That's not what these books are about. These books are supposed to allow us to see the ways in which literature is crucial to understanding our moment. And every session I've sat in at this exceptional literary festival has been about that, and I think of my work in that way. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I, I can see exactly what you, you, you mean uh, uh, about the final in intention of 1606. Um, but I wonder, you know, if there, if there aren't points as well where um, what, what you perhaps rather unkindly called um, antiquarian interests also come in. For, for example, um, it struck me that uh, in 1599, you know, what, one of the first things you write about is the, is the demolition of the theatre where Shakespeare's plays um, had, uh, up to this point, his major plays had been performed, uh, the demolition of that theatre, uh, the moving of the timbers across the Thames, and the re-erection of the first globe uh, on that site. And you'd clearly been quite patient in reconstructing all the building methods um, that the company would have employed and so on. Uh, so there must also be a kind of... Uh, fascination with the textures of the past that don't necessarily um, speak to anything particular in the present. I think you reviewed my book very generously in the LRB, that book, and one of the things you pointed out was the thing that made me happiest of any review that I read, uh, and that had to do with the building of the foundations of the Globe Theatre in uh, in, in Southwark in the spring of uh, 1599. I couldn't figure out when the foundations were, were, were laid. And, but I did understand, because we know something about Elizabethan building practice, that uh, they didn't use antifreeze while building uh, <laughs> foundations. And uh, I build dry stone wall uh, when I'm not writing and when my back's good enough. And uh, one of the things uh, about building dry stone wall in Vermont is, is frosty. The, the ground goes up and down by about 12 inches and the wall will collapse unless you build a, wrong, a strong foundation. So I went around to all the old masons in the area and said, you know, how do you build a foundation and, and, and how long into winter do you have to wait or spring to do so? And, of course, they all said, well, you just pour some antifreeze in. I said, no, 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 pre-antifreeze. <laughs> well, this is what my dad did or my granddad did. And, uh, for me, it's a material world. It's a physical world. They chose thatch rather than tile mm. to build the globe, which was a terrible mistake. And we fetishized that. Oh, isn't that house beautiful? We'll, we'll pay 30,000 pounds more for a house with thatch. But thatch is flammable. And at a performance of Henry VIII in 1613, Shakespeare's company said, we should have used tile because <laughs> the thatch caught fire and the theater burned to the ground and they had to pay a pretty penny to replace it. So I'm trying to place myself in that space at that time. And the reason I do it is, uh, I talked a little bit about this um, um, in my seven minute, uh, speech the other day. I, I didn't understand Shakespeare. I felt out of it. I didn't feel like the Duncan Jones or the Greenblatts privileged enough to understand what was going on in these plays. I never studied Shakespeare formally at university or more than one high school class. So um, I try to approach the world of Shakespeare from the perspective of somebody like myself who felt confused, left out. Um, kept at arm's length from this. And when I'm writing my books, I'm really writing for my mother-in-law, who never went to university. And when I finish 
a penultimate draft, I give it to her, and I just say, can you just circle any pages or chapters that make no sense to you or are too difficult? And she does, and I, I just leave them out. I don't even try to bring them along. I don't want people to feel confused. I want people to feel that they are entering a world that is accessible to them because it is an accessible world. Perhaps if we, we can move from the historically local to the geographically local, because I understand the book that you're working on at the moment um, is about Shakespeare in a divided America. Have I got that right? You do. That's the, that's the working title. Mm. Um, I had really thought after... 1599 took me 15 years to research and write, and, and 1606 took me another 10 and I'm kind of counting backwards from the end of my life whether I, how many more yearbooks <laughs> that I have. And um, not that I, that's privileged information, but I'm kind of guesstimating. And it is, it's really an exhausting process, and it's a long one. And I thought, I'm, I'm not going to write another book for a long time. I'll do journalism, I'll work in theater groups. And everybody who knew me said, oh, sure, you know. But a year passed, and I began to persuade people that I wasn't going to be writing another book for a while. And then last November happened, and Donald Trump became, uh, at least temporarily, president of the United States. <laughs> and uh, I, was, I was enraged. I was confused, and I thought, what? did I get wrong and what did everyone I know get wrong about America? How did I misread my nation so badly? And because the only thing I really know is Shakespeare, I thought, um, I'm going to try to understand what is wrong with America and I'm going to go back into its history to try to understand it through Shakespeare. And what I've been discovering is... Um, there are things that Americans in particular, I would say, are not good at talking about with each other and are not good at admitting to themselves. And yet when they begin to write or talk about Shakespeare, the truth leaks out. And uh, I'll give but one example. Uh, Steve Bannon, who is a nationalist alt-right, uh, advisor to Donald Trump and in the White House wrote a treatment of Coriolanus, which is the most racist and frightening template for what he imagines were he able to influence the future of America. And uh, if you want to understand Steve Bannon and the alt-right and what they have planned for my nation, you can learn a lot about that from reading his Coriolanus. And going back in time, uh, I discovered there are many, many moments in which Shakespeare helps illuminate the issues that we've been describing. There's one Michael and I um, uh, share an interest in, and he shared with me an extraordinary poem about it last night, which uh, I, I treasure and love. And it's about an incident that took place in, in 1846 in Corpus Christi, Texas. And I don't know if anybody here was born in Corpus Christi or has visited there, visited there but at the time it was considered the, the armpit of Texas. And <laughs> um, 4,000 US troops were sent there to provoke a war on the Mexican uh, uh, Republic. America was no longer just a republic, it was now gonna be an empire because we were going to take land from the Mexicans. And long before there was Make America Great Again, there was Make America Great, and this was that moment. And among the uh, officers gathered there were many of the men who would fight against each other in the American Civil War. And they saw that the troops, while waiting to cross the Rio Grande, were fighting, drinking, whoring, and getting into trouble. So they built the theater, and they, painted the scenery, and they decided among the first plays they were going to put on was Othello. And they looked around to cast an actor to play Desdemona because they only had men available. And there was a guy named Longstreet, uh, uh, one of the great, great generals for the Confederacy. And he was about my size. They thought he was too big, and 
too bearded for the role. So they found a, a, another officer who was 5'7 uh, and 135 pounds, and he was Ulysses S. Grant. And he became 18th president of the United States, and, and as Longstreet said after the war, he looked great in a dress. <laughs> uh, and Grant played all the girls' roles. And uh, I, uh, I was talking about this at the university yesterday to a terrific group. And, you know, for me, if I want to understand my nation, I'm putting myself back there thinking, what did it mean for a future American president who hated this Mexican war and saw for what it was to see the world through a cross-dressed heroine married to a black man. And I can't imagine my current president doing that. Uh, whatever he was doing in Russia on those tapes was not that. But um, these are the ways in which uh, I try to grapple with where my nation went off course to try, and the book will be out before the next formal election in 2020, to try to uh, bring Shakespeare into the conversation and not surrender the field to uh, the pundits and the journalists who have, in a sense, taken from the Michael Neals and the Jim Shapiros the power to try to explain the cultural forces at work. I think academics have an obligation to explain that and uh, use what we know. So I'm, I'm trying to do that and tell good stories. A couple of, of, of small, sort of thinly related details about American Shakespeare that you, you might be able to enlighten me about. I understand that the first Shakespeare play to be performed after the War of Independence was Julius Caesar. And you can see exactly why that might be so. I, I don't know anything about the production, perhaps you do, but it, uh, uh, you know, to, to stage a play about a revolution against a tyrant is obviously uh, to use Shakespeare for, for a particular political purpose. Uh, and then moving forward a little, you have the extraordinary Booth family, originally English, clearly people of a radical persuasion because the sons get names like Lucius Junius Booth, named after the, uh, the, you know, the man who, who rises against the Tarquins. Um, and John Wilkes Booth, assassin of Lincoln, but named after one of the great English radicals of the 18th century. What, what has happened to radical American Shakespeare in that period leading up to the assassination? That's a great question. And, and I should preface my answer by saying every nation has a mini canon of Shakespeare, which is to say six or seven plays that dominate the cultural conversation and that are constantly restaged. And Julius Caesar, Macbeth, Richard III uh, have always been part, along with Hamlet and uh, one or two other plays, have always been at the core of that American canon. And during the revolutionary period, Coriolanus was staged before the troops. So these political plays always mattered to Americans uh, invested in what a republic was. And uh, nothing is more poignant to me than the Booths. I, I go to Central Park, one of my favorite places, and there's a, a beautiful statue of Shakespeare in that park. And those of you who visit New York the next time you do so, Take a look at that statue, because that statue was raised in part by a fundraiser that brought the three Booth brothers together to perform Julius Caesar. And six months later, John Wilkes Booth, who had played Anthony in that production, assassinated Lincoln and wrote a letter quoting Julius Caesar in justification of killing President Lincoln. And Lincoln, of course, was the president most invested in Shakespeare and spent his time reading Claudius's speech from Hamlet about guilt and responsibility over and over in the White House. And he could quote it by heart when his picture was being painted. He passed the time quoting Shakespeare. So Shakespeare is baked into the fabric of the nation in sometimes tragic and, and sometimes comic ways. And 
Uh, Julius Caesar remains the radioactive uh, Shakespeare play in America. I, I, I was telling you backstage that um, I'm working with the Public Theater on a production that will open next week in the Delacorte Theater, uh, in which the similarities between Trump and uh, uh, Caesar are extraordinary. And there are four or five moments in that production that I've seen in rehearsal and I worked a bit on that audiences will have to turn away from. It is devastating and it tells us something about the current political moment in ways that nothing else can. And all I can say is, without giving away too much, the scene in which Calpurnia comes to Caesar and begs him not to go to the Senate is done with Caesar in a bathtub, texting, smoking a cigar. <laughs> and when Ivanka, uh, I'm sorry, not <laughs> when Melania slash Calpurnia comes out and says, Caesar, on my knees, I beg you not to go, you just cringe from what she's saying, and you realize these lines are in Shakespeare, not just in your imagination. And I think it's one of the ways in which those in the theater world, in the arts, uh, have available to them Shakespeare. You're not just picking up Shakespeare now, you're picking up a tradition of hundreds of years of people wielding Shakespeare uh, politically. And I don't just mean on the left, a play like Coriolanus was used in Germany and France in the 30s for radically different political views. That I don't know what Shakespeare's politics are and his plays leave open all kinds of interpretations of them. And uh, they do so in a way that is so insightful that they are still useful to us uh, 400 some odd years later. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a constant pleasure to me here to notice how often uh, politicians in their more pompous moments um, like uh, to quote Polonius uh, on being true to yourself or Iago on uh, good name. <laughs> and they never seem to realize that these speeches actually have a context. <laughs> the people yeah. who speak them rather discredit the words. Um, you know, they, they, <laughs> they're getting the quotations from Bartlett's rather than for having seen them in a play. And um, there was a time I just came across a spectacular speech given in Congress against, in the 1840s, against American expansionism. And the congressman from Boston is quoting from King John at length. And damn, I can't quote a line from King John. And <laughs> they knew the plays. Yeah. And this shaped their political imaginations in ways that those who look for quotations on Google and misrepresent what the speaker is actually doing and saying don't. <laughs> do, you, do you think that uh, one of the reasons that that Shakespeare texts are politically adaptable in the way that you've begun to describe has to do with the fact that Shakespeare, as you show, particularly in 1599 and 1606, is, is constantly responding to contemporary politics, but he can never talk about it directly. He, he, he has to talk about these matters in a kind of code as all dramatists of the period did, and what they often complain about in prologues, disingenuously, I think, is what they call application. Uh, I, I, you know, people have taken something from the play and said, oh, this is all about such and such or so and so. Um, and it probably was, but they have to make the disclaimer. Uh, so Shakespeare, engaging as often as he does with a whole span of English history, is talking about the present, but um, behind a, a mask, as it were, and, and maybe this is what um, makes him peculiarly adaptable. Yeah, I, I would put it in a slightly different way, and, and I usually answer this question in the context of what do you think is the greatest thing about Shakespeare? And uh, I think two things mark him out. One is he didn't end up in prison like almost every other dramatist, <laughs> that he had this canny sense of walking the line 
Now Johnson's writing these begging letters, get me out of here. I don't want to have my ear cut off, you know, just please. And we know what happened to Marlowe and others fell afoul of the authorities, Nash and others as well. So Shakespeare had a really uncanny ability to know how far to push politically without ending up in cuffs. And the other great gift that he had was to be able to act, rehearse, act all day, and write at night without the benefit of caffeine, which was not yet introduced into England. How he did that is the true <laughs> mystery of William Shakespeare. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I was uh, going to ask you a bit more about, well, perhaps I can just quickly before we open sure. this up for questions. Um, I'm cur curious about your uh, experience working with theatre practitioners. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I think it's something that um, a lot of academics would really like to do, if only to educate themselves. I, I, I mean, I think that um, the best moments of Shakespeare performance that I've ever really witnessed have been in rehearsal. Um, which isn't to denigrate what finally happens when you get a superb production, but what's fascinating in rehearsal is that you get a, a, a group of intelligent actors trying out various things, looking at, at possible lines through the play, uh, and deciding what will work in this production and what won't. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, I mean, those have been occasions where I've largely sat mute, but just uh, admiring and learning. But obviously, your, your relationship is, is of a more two-way kind. And I wonder if you'd like to speak about what it has taught you as a teacher of Shakespeare and, uh, and what you think you've contributed sure. to the actors. Um, what it's done in my classroom is I, I never teach a Shakespeare class without dragooning three or four students up to act out a scene, and then we, we take it from there. But uh, it, it took me about 15 years uh, to play the camel and the tent game with theater uh, companies, that is to say to let me in a little bit at a time <laughs> until it was too late and I was all the way in the tent. And there are not a lot of Shakespeare professors who are allowed into the rehearsal process. And the simple answer is because <sighs> push your Shakespeare professor far enough and he or she will tell you what the play is about. And as soon as you do that, you are useless to <laughs> actors. You're just shown the door. And I learned how to keep my mouth shut and my opinions to myself and answer questions that I was not used to answering. So spear carrier number two comes up to me in a production of Anthony and Cleopatra. He has no lines and he says, what was my mother like? <laughs> <laughs> and you do your best to explain <laughs> what his mom was like. And it sounds silly, but it is necessary. And because I can't act, and my Brooklyn accent precludes that ever happening, you know, I can maybe act in a Neil Simon play, but that's about it. <laughs> um, and because I have no interest in directing, uh, and I have none of the DNA that courses through your blood for both acting and, and uh, performing, um, they let me in, I'm the eunuch in the room. And um, it has been thrilling. And I have to say, this is not something that I like sharing, what you see in even the greatest performances is homogenized. That is to say, some of the most spectacular work occurs in rehearsal and can't be reproduced. I remember with F. Murray Abraham's Merchant of Venice, at a certain point the um, the scene in which Shylock, Antonio, and Bassanio wasn't working, and the director, Darko Trezhnak, who's brilliant, weighed about 90 pounds, says, we need a bit more of a pogrom in this moment. So we had a couple of young Christians challenge Shylock, and one of them made the mistake of cuffing Murray on his shoulder. And F. Murray Adrian is in character, like, a year before he starts playing. And I asked him how he got into character for Sherlock. He said, I just had my friends spit at me and kick me. And he, you know, he's a method actor. And he went off and he started chasing this young actor who adored him around the room and started to kill him. 
And I thought, I'm a professor, I'm used to breaking up fights, I should do something, but I'm not in charge, Darko is. And he's like crossing his legs and watching this, and I'm thinking, this is going badly. And the actor Tom Nevis playing Antonio grabbed Murray as he was going by and continued in the scene about 30 lines later, and it was as electric as anything I've ever seen. They couldn't bottle it and keep it in the production, but that moment is what happens in rehearsals. And once in a very long time, I get to make a suggestion, and usually it's once during a production. And uh, we, uh, one of the things that public theater does is take Shakespeare to prisons. And it's a 90-minute production. I cut the text, it's all Shakespeare's words. A lot of prisons only let the inmates out for 90 minutes. And we did a production of Hamlet with a black actor named Chuck Iwuji, who's a Royal Shakespeare Society superstar. And he's playing Hamlet, and we know we're going into prisons where they've never seen a play, let alone Shakespeare. And it was a modern dress Hamlet, and it came to the, uh, we came in rehearsal to the scene where he has to do to be or not to be. And I suggested to Chuck, why don't you just take off your belt, tie off, and when you're talking about that bare bodkin and sleeping and dreaming, bring it into the kind of, world of suicide and drugs and heroin. And he did it brilliantly. And watching this on a roof of a federal prison in lower Manhattan on a hot night, uh, a hot afternoon in, in August last summer, every inmate is leaning in. And they got that moment in Shakespeare, in Hamlet, better than I ever will. So um, it's been thrilling to, to me as I learn a little bit more um, uh, about my, my culture and about theater, because I'm always on the outside. I don't have the chops to, to act or direct, but I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm helpful in the way that I can be. Um, am I right in saying that you, you'll be outside to sign copies of your books? I will indeed. I'm happy to sign. I have copies of uh, 1599 and 1606, and when I've signed these two, I think there are others for sale out there. Thank you so much. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.